Well, we are in Matthew chapter 16 this morning, where in verses 13 to 20, we are, we see here a a section really packed full of theological richness. Last week, we focused on verses 13 and 15, where Jesus asked that profound question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then again in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And so he asked his disciples who people say that he was. And we saw last week that it's important to truly know Jesus Christ or to be known by him. And we talked about the importance of knowing him for who he truly is, of knowing the true and living Lord Jesus Christ. And we called that last week the objective side knowing who Christ is. And then we talked about as well the subjective side of this, who is Christ to you? And we asked the question, have you responded to Jesus Christ or how have you responded to Jesus Christ? And so we need to know objectively who Jesus is and we need to know subjectively, we need to respond to him. And what we want to do today is I want to go deeper on the question, who is Jesus Christ? And I called this sermon, Who is Jesus Christ? I've never done a message before where the sole aim is answering this critical question, Who is Jesus Christ? And that's what we intend to do. Let's just read our text, though, again here, starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And so what we're aiming to do again today is to answer that question Who is Jesus Christ? And we want to kind of really, what we're going to do is is really jump off of Peter's answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we want to kind of launch into a full Christology. And we want to answer that question. Who is Jesus Christ? Not just from Peter's confession here, but really from the totality of Scripture. So this is going to be somewhat of a topical message. But before we do that, before we kind of jump into what the scriptures say, I, I want to kind of look at a little bit at church history, and I want to introduce you to a couple of important figures in church history, and a, and a few others as well. And we're going to spend a good deal of time here. We're going to go all the way back to 250 AD, between 250 and about 375 AD. And so we're talking about 250 years after Jesus, about 200 years after the apostle John died. And the first guy that I want to introduce you to, his name is Arius. And Arius was a heretic. 
Arius lived from 256 AD to 336, and he was from Libya, which is northern Africa, just west of Egypt. And Arius received his religious training from Antioch. You might remember Antioch from Acts 11.25. Barnabas went to Tarsus, took Saul, and he found him, and he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the Christians were first called disciples. Antioch was the the home of Paul's missionary journeys. Remember, he always would come back to Antioch and go around. And it was about 700 kilometers north of Jerusalem. So you can kind of have a picture of where it is there. Antioch was in the east, and in terms of the ancient church, we kind of consider Palestine and that whole area on the east there, the, the eastern side of the church. Rome, of course, was in the west. But Egypt and Libya, where, where Arius kind of lived and, and was from, was, was also kind of considered east because it was kind of connected kind of underneath the Mediterranean there on the east side. And so to get there, unless they went by boat, they would kind of go through the east and then make their long journey to Rome. But Arius was trained in the east by Lucian of Antioch, who was martyred in 312 AD. And the eastern part of the church in that day, and really almost kind of throughout, and and now we know that in 1150, there was the divide between the east and the west. But the, the eastern church in that day before the divide was highly influenced by a a great theologian that was from the East, his name was Origen. And Origen had taught that the Son, the, our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was inferior to the Father. And so Arius was brought up and trained that the Son was divine, that he was God, but that, that he was somehow slightly less God than the absolute divinity of the Father. Now, I should say for in Origen's defense that the church didn't really wrestle with these things until about this time. This is when the doctrine of Christ started to get formed more solidly. And they believed that the Son was God, but that He was not the Father. And they were really concerned in those days about just living for Christ and being holy, and they were highly persecuted until about this time. Remember, again, Arius's teacher, Lucian, was martyred in 312 AD. Now, perhaps you're here today and, and you're in much the same state then as the early church. Maybe you've never really thought deeply about the question, who is Jesus Christ? But at some point, that question needs to be answered, and the answer is found in Scripture, and, and really Scripture alone But the early church wrestled with the Scriptures and they searched the Scriptures and they articulated an answer very carefully for themselves and for all who came after them about this question, who is Jesus Christ? And the reason that they did this and the reason that they had to really dig into this is because of false teaching about Christ that arose in the church, really starting in in one sense on the doctrine of Christ anyway, starting with Arius. And so let me introduce you then to another church father. This one is not a heretic. His name was Alexander. And Alexander was the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt was part of the Eastern Church and really a very important city in the uh, the ancient world. There was a great library there. It was kind of the, the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire of that day. 
And Alexander didn't accept this idea of origin that the Son was slightly less the divine than the Father. Alexander rightly said that the Son was fully and truly God. That he was God in as absolute a sense as the Father was God. And Alexander was the bishop of the area where Arius lived. And so as he started to understand and, and, and come to, to know Arius's view, he asked him to come and present his views to him. And so in 318, Arius presented his views on Christ to Alexander. And Arius, presenting his views that Christ was, was not God, Alexander kind of refuted those views and Arius said that Alexander was a Sibelian and he told him that you are a Sibelian. Now you might go, what in the world is a Sibelian? Well, Sibelianism, which, which you probably maybe know better as modalism. Does anyone, can anyone give me a nod if they've heard of modalism? You might, okay, a couple of people, you, you know, you might have to listen to this message a couple times, I was thinking here as we kind of get into this, but modalism taught that God is one person who acts sometimes as the Father, acts sometimes as the Son, and acts sometimes as the Holy Spirit. And so Sibelius, who, who taught this, said that since there's only one God, there could only be one person. One person is the Father, but he acts in different ways or in different modes, hence the name modalism. And so when Alexander said rightly that the Son was God, Arius thought that it either must mean a couple of things. One, it could either mean if, if, if God, the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, then Arius thought it must mean that there's then three gods, which of course scripture doesn't teach. Or if you say there's only one God, which scripture clearly teaches, then you must be a Sibelian or you must be a modalist. And the ancient church had already learned to hate modalism and Sibelianism. And so here's how Arius solved the problem. And the problem is that there's only one God, and yet that same God, there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Arius said the answer to this thing is that the Son was not God, not in any sense. And so Arius went further than Origen. Remember, Origen had said that the Son was not created, that he was God, but it was somehow slightly less than all that the Father was. And the way that Origen explained that is he illustrated it like this. He said that when the Father transmitted his nature to the Son, that nature became a degree less than perfect, just like light loses some of its brightness the further it gets from the source. And so that's how Origen explained it. And Origen was really doing his best to formulate for the first time ever how one God can exist as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Arius went, went further than Origen, and he said that the, that the Son was not God. And he taught that Jesus was the first created being. And he said that Christ was above all other beings that God had made, and that Christ was, that Christ had made everything else that was made in the world, and that he was therefore worthy of worship, but again, that he was not God. Arius taught that there was a time when Christ was not. And that view is very much the same view as the Jehovah's Witnesses have to this day. It's really the view of Arius or what they call Arianism. Well, Alexander, he saw that this 
teaching, what Arius was teaching was not according to scripture. And so in 320 AD, he called together a council of Egyptian bishops and they discussed this issue and then, and studied this issue. And then they removed Arius from teaching and they said that he was teaching heresy. And so he was removed from Alexander's bishopric, the area that Alexander oversaw. But Arius went east to Palestine and continued to teach that Christ was not God. And he was a very popular preacher and teacher. And he wrote really uh, catchy songs that really spread his doctrine through these songs kind of all over the Eastern church. He was very influential. But at the same time, it seems like he was somewhat maybe deceitful. And the, the Eastern church, although they were very influenced by him, they don't, they didn't really seem to understand that, that Arius was actually teaching that Christ was not God in any sense. Now, Alexander had a young assistant at the time, and this is who I really want to introduce you to this morning. His name was Athanasius. And Athanasius was a deacon in the church in Alexandria, and he was an assistant to Alexander of Alexandria. And Athanasius is really a hero of the faith, a defender of Trinitarian orthodoxy, and one of the, the one who really blazed the trail for a biblical answer to this question, who is Jesus Christ? And so Athanasius is really somebody that you should know. And in 324 AD, Constantine became the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. And he attributed his military victories to the Christian God, and he transformed the climate from one of persecution of Christians to one which favored Christians and Christianity. But he also, as he kind of came into power in 324 AD, he found that the church was somewhat divided over this Arian controversy. And so he felt like it was his duty to restore unity to the divided church. Remember, in those days, the emperor was also kind of the the head of the pagan religion. And so Constantine kind of saw himself as the protector of Christianity. And he wanted his kingdom to be united around Christianity. And so he summoned the bishops of the entire emperor, the entire empire, to Nicaea in 325. And 318 bishops and about 2,000 people in all came to this first ecumenical council that Constantine called really the first of its time or of its kind since the Jerusalem council in acts 15 again the council of nicaea 325 now constantine's goal was more political than it was theological and it was constantine who made this whole thing happen it wasn't the bishops of the church who wanted to answer this question it was really constantine and so i'm not really sure if Alexander was actually able to come to this council in Nicaea, but for sure his assistant Athanasius was there. And there were three views presented at the council. The the view of Arius was presented that Jesus Christ was not God. Athanasius presented Alexander's view that Jesus was co-equal with God. And then a mediating party presented a third view And the question of the council was the deity of Christ. And there was, again, there was these three options. And these three options are represented by three Greek words that I I think you should know. The first one is heterousius. 
And heterousias means of a different substance. Heterousiness, of a, of a different substance, of a different essence. Hetero is different. Usius is, is essence or substance or being. And so this was the view of Arius that Jesus was of a different substance than the Father. The mediating view is homoousius. Homoousius, which means of a similar substance. And that was the, the mediating view. And then thirdly, the, the view of Alexander and Athanasius, which is homo which means of the same substance. Christ is the same essence, the same nature as the Father. Now during the council, the, the emperor initially kind of favored the mediating view, this homoousius view, but when it became clear that even Arius was willing to accept that Christ was similar, but not quite the same as the Father, the, the council the, the bishops would not have it, and so Arius's view was rejected. And those who held the mediating view, except for about three or four of them, were convinced that Christ was God equally with the Father. Now again, we should say this was not decided by vote. The bishops were really persuaded by Scripture. But here's what they came up with. This is the Nicene Creed from 325, but it was updated after Athanasius' death in 381, and that's kind of the popular version. I'm going to read that. This is the, the, the Creed of Nicaea, 381. It says this, We believe in one God the Father, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. One substance there is homoousius. By whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick, the living, and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Ghost. And that's where the 325 version ended. The, the later one added this. We believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Well, that original creed from 325 also added at the end this, quote, but those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or that the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And this condemnation was really the first anathema in a creed. 
And to, to declare somebody anathema is even stronger than excommunicating someone. When you excommunicate someone, you're saying that person is acting unlike a Christian and, and, and they don't belong to us, but they might be a true believer and they might come back. But when you say that somebody is anathema, it's saying that they're outside of the Christian faith altogether. And so this council anathematized Arius's views and Arius was banished because he wouldn't sign this creed. And you'd think almost that the controversy would have ended there. But over the next 50 years, even extending beyond Arius's life, the next 50 years of Athanasius's life, Athanasius was involved in a bitter controversy to defend the truth that Jesus Christ was God. That he was homoousius with the Father and not merely homoousius. That he was of the same substance with the Father and not merely a similar substance. And over these 50 years, the Eastern Church, where, again, where Arius was trained and where they were influenced by origin, they were, they were highly influenced by Arius' views. And there was also some confusion about the terminology that I, I really can't get into today. But over those 50 years, between 325 and 373, when Athanasius died, Athanasius was banished five times as the political winds shifted here and there, as different people got into the ear of the various emperors over that time. And Arianism came in and out of favor in those years as different emperors ruled. And so in 328, Athanasius became bishop of Alexandria when Alexander died, just four years after the Council of Nicaea. And then in 336, eight years later, he was exiled. And he came back one year later in 337 after Arius died, and, and, and then he was exiled again after only two years back in 339. And that exile lasted seven years until 346. And then from 346 to 356, Athanasius had his 10 golden years of fruitful ministry and writing, but in 356, he was exiled again. And that exile was five years long. And then he was restored in 361 and exiled again in 362 and restored in 363 and exiled again in 365 and then restored in 366, but he died in 373. And so 17 of the 45 years that he was bishop, he spent in exile over this question. And he had to stand alone. He had to stand alone. And at one such time, he famously said, Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. And the idea was that if the whole world stood against him, and it really felt like that as the whole Roman Empire at times stood against him, he was going to stand for the truth. Now here's why I bring this up. Because some people would view this whole thing as really a waste of time. Why spend 17 years on the run for the difference between homoousius and homoousius? You can hardly sound the difference between them. What, you know, what's the difference between Christ being of the same nature as the Father or Him being of a similar nature? Again, we're talking about the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet makes the difference. Similar versus 
the same. Why bother? Why trouble yourself, Athanasius? Emperor Constantine had no trouble at all, kind of switching back and forth between those views. Other bishops agreed with Arius over that period. Why stand against the world and live in caves and obscure monasteries and live on the run? And this is really what made Athanasius a hero of the faith. He saw that God was a God of truth. And so he stood for the truth. And he wanted to know the true God himself. And he wanted those he ministered to to know the true God. Athanasius understood that truth matters, especially truth about God. But he also understood that salvation was a work of God, that it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to save mankind. And he understood that we need to have the true God to have the salvation that that true God offers. A favorite verse of his was 2 Peter chapter 1, and let's go ahead and and turn there this morning, Second Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, His power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so we see there that there's this knowledge of God that that Athanasius recognized was necessary for this salvation. And he also argued from this passage that, that if we're to become partakers of the divine nature, then we would need a Savior who could accomplish that. And so he argued that only God could provide a salvation that made us partakers of the divine nature. And if Jesus was less than God, he could not bring us to God. And he also taught that Jesus was worshipped. The ancient church really understood that the Lord Jesus Christ was worthy of worship and that, that only God was worthy of worship. And so if we worshipped a created being, even if he was the highest created being, then we are committing idolatry. And really, Athanasius argued in that case, we're no better than the pagans described by Paul in Romans chapter 1, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That was Romans 1 and verse 25. And so he said, if we worship the creature rather than the creator, we are idolaters. Listen to Athanasius in his own words. He says, quote, We have seen that to change the corruptible to incorruption was proper to none other than the Savior himself, who in the beginning made all things out of nothing, that only the image of the Father could recreate the likeness of the image in men, that none save our Lord Jesus Christ could give to mortals immortality, and that only the Word, the Logos, who orders all things and is alone the Father's true and soul-begotten Son could teach men about Him and abolish the worship of idols. End quote. You see, the early church understood better than I think we do that our Savior needed to be God and He needed to be man. 
And as false teachers arose in the church, the church arose and stood against these false teachers and their false teaching, and they articulated the truth about God and Christ from Scripture. And they did so with increasing clarity as new false ideas of Christ arose in that time. Well, I just wanted to introduce you to Arius and Athanasius, but you should know that shortly after Athanasius died, many great men of the faith arose. The two Gregories, Basil, Ambrose, Jerome, John Chrysostom, and Augustine, they were all just shortly after Athanasius' life. And Athanasius really stood alone during much of his life, but through his influence, God raised up some great men of the faith. And those great men of the faith, those ones that I just mentioned, were worked together in 451 A.D., About 75 years after Athanasius died at the Council of Chalcedon, and the church wrote a new creed that clearly articulated the doctrine of Christ, how he is both God and man, one person with two natures, God and man. And we're going to read from that Chalcedonian creed or the symbol of Chalcedon as it's called later on. Now, it's important to say and it's important to emphasize here that church history is not our authority. Scripture is the Word of God and God alone is our authority through His Word. But we recognize that God has worked and is working through history to build His church. And the Holy Spirit has raised up teachers who defended and articulated the truth of Scripture throughout the years. And every generation of the church stands on the shoulders of those who came before us. You see, it takes centuries to mine the depths of God's Word. And it's not the work of one man alone with his Bible and the Holy Spirit. It's really a work that happens through centuries as the Holy Spirit works through multiple men and as the church arises to answer the false teachings that come. And so we need to look to those who came before us and we need to learn from them, but we always need to make sure that what they taught is the teaching of Scripture and that we have the teaching of the Word of God. Arius had said that, that Christ or the, the Logos was a created being. And so let's go to Scripture now and let's see what we can learn about Christ. And we want to answer this question, who is Jesus Christ. And first of all, what, what I want to show you here is the pre-existence of Christ. The pre-existence of Christ. Number one in your outline on the back of the page. Number one, Jesus is the only person who ever existed before he was born. The Bible teaches that Jesus was with the Father before he came to earth. And in John 17, Jesus prayed before he died. He was, he was to die shortly on the cross and return to his Father in heaven. And look what he says in John chapter 17. Let's go there. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures here. And you can turn with me if you want, or you can just kind of let me read them to you if you prefer. But John chapter 17, as Jesus is kind of preparing for the cross, his great high priestly prayer... He says in verse 4, I glorified you, speaking to his Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do or that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And if you jump down to verse 24, he says there, Father, I desire that they also 
whom you have given me may be with me where I am in heaven to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus existed with the Father before the foundation of the world. He existed before creation. If we go to the beginning of the book of John and look at John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says there, in the beginning was the Word, the, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, John here, when he talks about the Word, he's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ, as he makes clear later. But the Word was there in the beginning. And that's kind of a, a reference back to Genesis 1-1. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John is making this connection between God, the Father at creation in Genesis 1, with the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that the Word was with God. And there we see the distinction between God and the Word, between our Lord Jesus Christ and God. They are somehow different. And yet, and the Word was God. And so distinct from God and yet God. He was in the beginning with God. Again, there's this distinction and all things were made through him. That's the positive statement. Jesus made the world. And then there's a negative statement. Without him was not anything made that was made. There is nothing that was created except that Jesus was the one who created it. And so Jesus existed before creation. If you look at verse 14 there, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Well, let's look at another verse. Go over to Hebrews chapter one. We're thinking about here the pre-existence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews Chapter 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And so Jesus existed before creation, and He is the agent of creation. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And so Jesus is the creator of all things, and He's also the sustainer of all things. Through Him all things hold together. Back in Hebrews, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 10, it, it teaches that the Son is eternal like the Father. And so in Hebrews 1 and verse 10, if you go back to the, the psalm that this is quoted from, Psalm 102, you'll notice that in that context, it seems that this psalm is speaking about Yahweh, but the author of Hebrews applies this to the Son. And in verse 10, it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. 
And so we see there that Jesus is eternal like the Father. He's unchangeable like the Father. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. And we know this from the, the birth narrative that this is really a prophecy about Jesus, the one who's going to be one day ruler in Israel. But the end of that verse says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And so we see the eternality of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9 and verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This is speaking about Christ. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is not to say that Jesus is the Father, but He is a father, but he has noticed their everlasting father. And so he was from the beginning. Before creation, Jesus existed with the father. In John eight fifty eight, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, indicating his eternality, his, that he always existed even before Abraham was, and he continually exists. And so this word, the Son, the creator of the world, took on flesh. And that's what we see next in number two, the virgin birth of Christ. And so he existed before the foundation of the world. And then at one time he was born through the Virgin Mary. Now I'm going to be very brief here because we've already kind of seen this in our study of Matthew. But this eternal Son was born into the world through the Virgin Mary. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. And look at verse 22. It says, all this took place, all of this conception narrative that Matthew had been narrating there, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quoting Isaiah 7.14, now behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the virgin is going to conceive and bear God with us. Look at verse 18 of the same chapter, just back a little bit. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so before they came together, Jesus was born in the Virgin Mary. He was conceived. And his name means God with us. And we already saw that the Word was God. He is eternal. He was the Creator. But now let's go further and let's look at number three in our outline, the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. And to start this section off, let's go back over to Hebrews chapter 1. We can start in verse 2 again, but, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And then verse 3 adds, He, speaking about the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
And so here Christ is called the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And that's a really a title of Christ. And other titles of Christ show that he's God. Remember in, in our passage, the question originally was, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And Peter answered, who is the Son of Man? Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is the Son of Man? He is the Son of God. And so Son of Man, Son of God, both of those expressions really refer to nature. A son has the nature of his father. And Jesus is also called the only begotten, the unique son. The And, and this is a, a speaking of an eternal beginning. The, the, when it speaks about Jesus as being begotten, it doesn't mean that he was born in time. It means that he was eternally begotten and that he relates to the father as son. And we see that all through the book of John, the only begotten in, in verse 14 that we already read in 18 of chapter 1 and in John 3.16 and 18 and again in 1 John 4.9, Jesus is the only begotten or the unique son of God. Jesus is also called the firstborn. And the idea there is not again that he was born, but that he is the one who has the legal right of inheritance of the world in Colossians 1.15 and 18. He's called the Alpha and the Omega. Where Yahweh in the Old Testament is called the first and the last, this title is picked up in the New Testament. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation 1, 8 and 22, 12 to 13. He is called the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and Colossians 1, 15. He is called Lord or in the Greek, Kurios, which was used to, in the Old Testament to refer to Yahweh and the New Testament authors take up this language of Kurios and attribute it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, for example, in John 20, verse 28, Thomas says to the risen Christ, my Lord, my Kurios, and my God. And Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus blesses Thomas's exclamation that Jesus is Lord and God. Jesus is also called on a few occasions. He is actually called God. He is called Theos. Normally, that title is, re- is reserved for the Father, but at times Jesus Christ is called God. For example, in the verse that we just read, John 20, 28, or in John 1 and verse 1, or John 1, 18, or Romans 9, 5, or Titus 2, 13, or Hebrews 1, 8, and 2 Peter 1, 1, all of those times Jesus is referred to as God. And Jesus has attributes that only God has. We've seen that he has titles that refer to him as God. He also has attributes that that only God has. And so he is eternal, which we've already seen. He is immutable. He is unchangeable is what that means. Hebrews 3, uh, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so he's immutable. He is called holy. So in Luke 1, 35, the holy child shall be called son of God. Or in John 16, in John 6, 69, demons say that Jesus is the holy one of God. And again, in Luke 4, 34, the same thing. He is omniscient. He 
knows all things. And there's so many scriptures, I can't even give them all to you. But, but John, uh, at the end of John 21, verse 17, and in John 60, verse 30, both times, the disciples say to Jesus, you know all things. In Revelation 2 and verse 23, it says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And so there, Jesus is the one who searches the mind and heart, which is also God's prerogative. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He's also omnipresent. In Matthew 18 and verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name doing church discipline, Jesus says, I am there among them. And in Matthew 28 and verse 20, he tells us that in the Great Commission that he will be with you always to the end of the age. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time according to his deity. He's also omnipotent. He was called Mighty God in Isaiah 9-6. He had power over the storm and calmed a storm with a word in Matthew 8:26. And he did the same thing again after he walked on water in Matthew 14, 24 to 33. And after that incident, remember the disciples worshiped him when they recognized that he could walk on the water and stop the storm. He also rose people from the dead, including himself. He is omnipotent. He is all powerful. He also has immortality. Hebrews 7.16, having become a priest by the power of an indestructible life. He has immortality. He has sovereignty. In Matthew 28.18, the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And Jesus also calls himself the way and the truth and the life. All of these things describe and and describe Give us his attributes. Jesus' works also show his deity. And I don't even have time really to begin that he is the creator of the world. He is the sustainer of the world. He is the one who is sovereign over the providence of the world and everything that happens in the world. He is the one who gives revelation of the Father. In, In other words, if Jesus is the one who reveals the Father, then he must know the Father. And so the, the work of revelation that Christ does as the image of the Father shows us that He is God. Also, again, the resurrection and the fact that He is the judge of the world. His works show that, that He is God because only God could judge the world. And the prerogatives of Jesus also show His deity. What, what is due to Him? And so what is due to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, worship which again is only for God. Honor is due to Jesus Christ. In John 5.22, he says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And so the fact that Jesus is the judge means that we should honor Him just as we honor the Father. Other prerogatives that Jesus has is that He is the object of saving faith. He forgives our sins. He gives eternal life. He saves. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He rewards His people in future judgment. He judges the wicked. He is to be obeyed and loved 
even above our families and our own lives. And so Jesus Christ is God. We've seen the deity of Jesus Christ, number three. Therefore, we must worship Him, we must trust Him, we must love Him, we must serve Him, we must obey Him as God. But now let's think about the humanity of Christ, which is equally as clear in Scripture. It's rarely doubted in our day that Jesus was a man, but at times in the history of the church, this was doubted. The evidence for Jesus' humanity, again, is just as clear as the evidence for His deity. But we're going to kind of be brief here again. In our text, He called Himself the Son of Man. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The man, Christ Jesus. In Romans 5, verse 15, the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And again, Romans 5, 17, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In Acts 22 and verse, in Acts 2, verse 22, Peter preached and said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. In John 8 and verse 40, Jesus himself says that he is a man. And he says there, now that you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. In scripture, Jesus is the last Adam. The promised son of David, the Messiah, who would succeed where the first Adam failed. And as the last Adam, he is man. And Scripture speaks of him having a human body. Of him having flesh and blood, a human soul, a human spirit. He grew and developed. He learned. His, his death shows that he was a man because God doesn't die. He was fully human in temptation without sin. He was weary. He was hungry. He thirsted. He slept. He wept. He grieved. He loved. He cared. He was amazed. He was in agony. He was zealous. He was lonely. All of these things show us that Jesus Christ was a man. And there's really so much more that we could say, but we need to keep moving here. Jesus was of the same nature as us, except that He was not born in Adam. And so he was free of sin. You see, it was critical for Jesus to be a man because a man had sinned and only a sinless man could pay the penalty for our sin. And so now we've seen the humanity of Jesus Christ. The final question for us today is how can one Lord Jesus have two natures? How can he be God and man, aren't those things contradictory? And so the question is, how can this be? And, and we're going to call this number five, the person of Christ. Theologically, this is called the hypostatic union or the, the fact that Jesus is a theanthropic person, that he is God and man, theos, anthropos. But the person of Christ is, I think, is good enough for us for today. And what we find is that that both of these two natures, God and man, exist in Christ. He is fully and truly God, and He is fully and truly man. And yet, in Scripture, throughout Scripture, He is one person. He is not 
divided. His two natures don't mix so that he becomes a, a God-man, partly God, partly man. And his natures don't get confused or, or mixed or, or divided or separated. And, and so Jesus always said, I am, not we are. Right? There's, there's no separation in him. There's a single person, there's a, a single I, but two natures, human and divine. And so scripture can say about Jesus in Hebrews 5 and verse 8, that he was a son and he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, which must mean that he learned according to his humanity. And he suffered according to his humanity. God doesn't suffer. God doesn't learn. God is all-knowing. But Scripture can say that about the one Jesus Christ. But at the same time, it can also say in the same book, even in Hebrews 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, which obviously must be speaking to his deity because he's not the same if he's learning according to his humanity and growing and becoming perfect. The fact that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever already says that he's imperfect and he can't improve and he can't get any worse. And so we see that scripture can speak about this one person according to his humanity or according to his deity. And so he is one person, God the Son. He eternally existed as God, sharing the one undivided nature of God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. There is one God and yet three persons. And then he added to himself this Son, this second person of the Trinity, added to himself a fully human nature and came to this world to save us from our sins. This is really the mystery of mysteries, but this is what Scripture clearly teaches. And this is how the church fathers, after Athanasius described this mystery in 451 AD to, to kind of bar the way and, and, and clear the way from all of the heretical teachings that had arisen about Christ. This is again is 451 AD, 70-some years after Athanasius died. This is the orthodox definition of the Trinity really to this day, the the creed or the, the symbol of Chalcedon says, quote, we then, following the Holy Fathers, like especially Athanasius, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same, perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body. In, in other words, he has a real, rational, human soul and body. Consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead. Consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In other words, he is of the same nature as the Father according to his divinity and of the same nature as us according to humanity. In all things like unto us without sin begotten before all ages according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, 
only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. Four very important words that, that show us that these two natures are, are both fully preserved. Inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of nature is being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the Son, and only begotten, the God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the true doctrine of Christ that, that You have given us and that You have taught us. We thank You for the even allowing the heretics to arise that we might know our Lord Jesus Christ in greater ways. Father, we pray that not only would we know this object of truth that we talked about today, but that we would also know the and be influenced by this subjectively, that we would that we would worship Jesus Christ, that we would see Him for all of the greatness of who He is, the, the one God, the Son. One person, two natures, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came for us and for our salvation. We thank You for Him, Father. We acknowledge that He is worthy of worship along with You and the Holy Spirit. That You are the one true God. And that we can only come to you through your son, Jesus Christ. Again, we thank you for him. And we praise you for him and for all that you've done for us through him and for your glory. We pray now that as we respond in singing that you would be glorified. And as we take the Lord's Supper together, that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.